If you will please turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, I believe it can be found on page 754 that's in the Bibles in your chair backs or underneath the chairs in front of you. We are continuing in our sermon series on the gospel according to Hosea, looking intently into this minor prophet that speaks so much to us about the good news. So I'll be reading from God's Word in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 2. Kind of a funny place to stop, but seems to be as good as any to stop there. This is God's holy word to us this morning. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on their way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed in the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, as we ask every week and every day, would you please teach us and instruct us in the way that we should go? Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things here in your word. Open our ears that we may hear the truth that is here proclaimed. We pray in Christ's name, amen. What am I going to do with you? What am I going to do with you? Perhaps you've heard that statement uttered by a parent to their child as they were disappointed or frustrated with their child being uh, disobedient or some other action that their child committed. I know that was used quite often with me when I was growing up as a child. What am I going to do with you? Well, that's what's going on here. The people of God in, in Hosea's day... 
Israel are continuing on their path of unfaithfulness and disloyalty to Yahweh their God. So in Yahweh God's frustration and disappointment with his people, he says, Oh, Ephraim, what am I going to do with you? Look there in verse 4. Oh, Judah, what am I going to do with you? And least we separate ourselves from God's word here in the Old Testament, he may be saying this morning, Oh, church. What am I going to do with you? The reason for God's disappointment, the reason for God's frustration with his people is their unrepentant nature, their failure to deal seriously with their sin. For me, and I imagine for all of us, one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is repentance. Daily repentance. Perhaps we struggle in this area of the Christian life because we don't realize that repentance is so necessary in order to deal with our sin. But before we go any further, let me, let me define repentance for us. I mean, that's just one of those Christianese words, right? It's one of those words used in the church or used by Christians. What does it mean? How do we define it? How do we apply it to our lives? Well, let me define it as simple as I possibly can. Biblical repentance, repentance according to what the scriptures teach, is to turn from sin and to turn to righteousness. Repentance is to turn away from sin and to turn toward righteousness. Oftentimes, though, we want to make repentance one-dimensional. To repent, we often think that it means just to stop sinning, and we leave it there. But there's so much more to repentance that we must understand. Yes, we must turn from our sin, and we must hate our sin, and we must realize that our sin is a great offense to Almighty God. But repentance is more than just being sorry for your sin. God wants us to turn to something more than just saying we're sorry for our sin. That's why he says in verse 6, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, for he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice. God wants us to know him and have knowledge of him rather than just burnt offerings, rather than just going through the motions of the Christian life. You see, repentance is a lifestyle. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's to be part of our daily walk with God. John Calvin, perhaps, gave it to us best. He says, repentance is the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of Him, and it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man, and then the, vivif and then the vivification, the bringing to life of the Spirit. That is what repentance is. And so Hosea chapter 6 all the way to chapter 7 verse 2 is going to speak to us about biblical repentance. And so I want us to look at that under three headings here. Number one, we're going to look at a superficial repentance. Number two, we're going to look at a failed repentance. And number three, we're going to see a great need of repentance. So the first we see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6 a superficial repentance. 
We read these words, come, let us return to the Lord, for look what he has done to us. Look what he will do to us. It's, it's a great response to verse 15 in chapter 5. Look in verse 15, chapter, uh, verse 15 in chapter 5, we see where God reminded them, where God told them that one of the ways he was going to discipline them, one of the ways he was going to try to woo them to himself, is he was going to withdraw his presence. He was going to draw back so that they would seek him. And so now we see in verse 1, come, let us, let us seek him. Let us return to him. There seems to be a very genuine, honest repentance going on here. They confessed that Yahweh God had, had torn them and struck them down. They, they realized they were wounded. They were struck down by his discipline. But he did this, they confessed, so that He would heal them, and he would raise them back up, and that they would acknowledge his love toward them. But the problem with their words, as we look very closely, is they were superficial. They were a little too simplistic. It's hard to believe that they really meant it here in their confession. Why? Why would I say that about God's word? It seems almost dangerous to say. Well, the reason is, is because their repentance lacked the very basic elements of what repentance, biblical repentance, looked like. Look in verses 1 through 3. There's no confession of sin. In no way did they acknowledge that they were idolatrous, that they were turning their backs on God and worshiping other gods. There also doesn't seem to be any instances here of a true relationship with God. They seem to be just presuming upon his goodness to them just if they offer a little sacrifices here and maybe a few burnt offerings there. We'll see how they simply are just going through the religious motions. And when we go through the religious motions, oftentimes we think that God must respond to us. They were trying to pacify God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. In a sense, they were saying, you know, I'm really sorry, God. But they were going back to doing the same old thing that they had been doing. Their hearts were far from God. Their repentance was superficial. It was incomplete. And it wouldn't last, as we'll read here in a minute. But I began to think about this for myself and for all of us in the Christian life as we seek to live a life of repentance, turning from our sin and turning toward righteousness, turning back to God, and even as we try to live a life of repentance toward each other, as we confess our sins to each other, as we tell each other, I'm sorry for what I did. Sometimes I'm sorry and I'll never do it again. It doesn't always work, does it? It doesn't always cut it. I remember that YouTube video going around of that kid with those puppy dog guys, just, I'm so sorry. And everyone just said, oh, it's okay, go on about your business. <laughs> but life doesn't work that way, does it? We must go a step beyond just saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Why? Why will we sometimes not accept somebody's apology or their genuine efforts at repentance when they say that, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It's because we want to see change, right? We don't want to just hear lip service. We want to see them 
not just honor their apology with their lips, but we want to see it in their actions. We want to see a literal change in behavior if someone says that they're sorry. It's the same way with our repentance. God wants our hearts. God wants more than just lip service. He wants more than just going through the religious motions. God wants our hearts when it comes to repentance. He wants our lives. He wants our, he wants our calendars. He wants our daily agendas. He wants all of us when it comes to living a life of repentance. He wants us to change by turning from our sin and to turn to him and to turn to his commandments. When we think about repentance, even right now in our culture today, and even in the church, there seems to be no real change in our culture, and even again in the church. And I think that perhaps we're not seeing any real change is because we have a a misplaced hope in what can truly change a culture. And this is perhaps due to the fact that there is no admission of sin. There's no wrestling with sin. And we even fail to talk about it in the Christian life. A popular thought in our culture about sin is that sin is no longer referred to as a state of fallen humanity in the worst part of mankind. Sin is considered a word from days gone by. It doesn't really apply to us anymore, and that's why we need to focus on social change and more money for this and for that. Sin is no longer referred to as the radical depravity of all mankind. And I think what we need, if we want to deal with repentance and not a superficial, a shallow repentance like we see here in verses 1 through 3, if we want to see change and repentance in our culture, we must be willing to call sin for what it truly is. It is evil. It is an offense toward an all-holy God. A true confession of sin, a, a true repentance deals with confessing sin, acknowledging sin. And it wasn't there. Verses 4 through 6, we see a very uh, a failed attempt at repentance. Look in verse 4. Yahweh God says, O Ephraim, O Judah, what am I going to do with you? What am I going to do with you? These are the words of frustration and disappointment with a people whose repentance, it was fleeting. Their repentance, it didn't last. Their repentance didn't have any substance. We find in verse 4 what failed repentance looked like. It looks like a morning cloud. It looks like the dew that goes away early. A few days ago, I was driving down from Montesano on Highway 431, and it was a glorious morning with these beautiful white clouds full of moisture that was dew everywhere. And so without trying to have a wreck, I was trying to film it. And then a few minutes, 30 minutes, an hour later, I'm driving back up the mountain to perhaps go pick up the kids, and it's all gone. 
It's not there anymore. It didn't last. That's what the dew is like, right? That's what the morning clouds are like. They're quickly evaporated by the sun's rays. And that is what Israel's repentance looked like. It didn't last. It failed quickly. But the contrast here is with the people and their failed repentance and a holy God who is not fickle, who does not fail his people. He does not storm out of the room in frustration. He seeks to actively shepherd and love his people. And so how will God deal with their shallow, failed repentance? What does he do to them? He will do this in verse 5 by the hewing and the slaying of his people with his prophets. Hewing is, is cutting and carving and chopping. It's a, it's a forestry word. Slaying, you know, cutting people down, really trying to get to the heart of the matter. How is God going to deal with his wayward, unfaithful people? He was going to send in a bunch of preachers. <laughs> he was going to send in the prophets to hew them, to slay them, his messengers that would not only foretell and predict what would happen in the future, but they were preaching. They were foretelling the, God, the words of God. They were speaking of God's commands. They were warning people from God's words. It is the preaching of the word by the prophets by which Yahweh God was going to have to go after the hearts of his people. He was going to seek to teach the people what true repentance looks like. And so he gave them his prophets. And he gave them the word. Because the word of God is living and active, right? It's sharper than a two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 says. It penetrates. God's word penetrates the heart. It says it divides joints and marrows. It searches the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. That is what the preaching and teaching of God's word does. And so what does true repentance look like? How was God going to correct, correct his people? Well, he wasn't, his, his correction was not going to be like the morning cloud or the dew that quickly fades away. Instead, if you look there in verse 3, God's steadfast love. God's going out is as sure as the dawn. His coming to his people is like the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We really wanted to build a fire last night and roast s'mores. But the rain came. And it wasn't a torrential downpour, but it, it covered everything in moisture. There was no way we were going to be able to light the wood. God's love, God's coming to his people is like that. He's not like the fickle dew and morning clouds that fade away. He comes and he showers his people with his love and his grace. And he does this by the preaching and the teaching of his word through the prophets. Do you see that repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry? Repentance is more than just making sure you go to church every Sunday, which is a good thing, by the way. It is more than just trying to do better. 
True repentance is seeing your sin in light of an all-holy God and turning from your sin and turning to something better. Perhaps this morning, perhaps today, you need to rededicate your life to a life of repentance. And you need to do this by loving God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, your whole life. So what does this look like? What does this look like to rededicate your life to a life of repentance? Well, here are a couple of suggestions. I do believe that it means to commit to regular attendance and worship. Okay, so I'm preaching to the crowd this morning because you're here. But what are your plans for the next month, the next two months, the next year? I mean, how many times do you plan to be out of worship? I'm planning to be here. It's my job. I need to be here. (laughs) But I want you here, too. And here's why I want you here. Because we need that weekly, that steady weekly reminders that we need the Lord. That we need to turn from our sin and we need to turn to worshiping him. Perhaps this committing your life to repentance looks like praying or reading the scriptures every day before you get your phone out and and wasting time on it. I'm guilty. Perhaps it means that you need to get rid of an idol in your life, and we all have idols we need to get rid of. Maybe it's a relationship that is harmful to you. Maybe it's something, it's some object that's consuming all of your time. You know what it is. You know what that idol is in your life. And you know that that idol is hurting your relationship with God. So what is it you need to get rid of? What does repentance look like for you? Remember that repentance is not just stop doing something, okay? I mean, that's oftentimes the way I wanted to live the Christian life. I wanted to tell others, let me tell you what I've stopped doing in my life. Repentance is not just stopping from sinning. It's turning to something better. So what do you need to turn from? And what do you need to turn to to live a life of repentance? Ultimately, true repentance is having knowledge of God. Look in verse 6. This is quoted by Jesus several times in the New Testament. We read it in our New Testament reading this morning. Verse 6, God says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He is teaching his people what repentance looks like. It looks like turning away from your sin, but loving me steadfastly, committed to me, and having knowledge of me. Not just knowing about me, but truly knowing me. And Jesus defines for us what this is in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, this is eternal life. Here it is for you, the most important thing that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
That is the knowledge that we need. That is the knowledge that leads to true repentance. Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father through Him. And so in the last part of the section, beginning with verse 7, we see a great need of repentance. A great need of repentance. I think another reason that we don't live a life of repentance as we should before the Lord is that there is a great failure to understand a biblical theology of sin. We don't have a biblical theology of sin. What do I mean by that? I mean that we don't recognize that the Bible has a much bigger issue with sin than just the mere indiscretions that we commit every day. Our sin, the sin of the world and the individual sins are much bigger, is a much bigger deal than we give it credit for. Because there's a failure to understand this basic truth. That you are a sinner, according to the scriptures, on two accounts. You are a sinner because you sin. You actively sin in your daily life, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think we all would raise our hands to that, that we know we sin and sin daily. But the second is just as important as taught more in the scriptures that we need to understand, is that is that you are born a sinner. That cute, cuddly little baby who we call as perfect and innocent and an angel is not. (laughs) It's not. A child is born into the fallen world and a child is born a sinner. The Bible proclaims very clearly that no one is righteous. No, not one. No one shows up into this world inherently good. We are all born bad. And the biblical theology of our sin is well laid out, is well taught in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul takes no shortcuts in Romans chapter 5, where he tells us how bad we are apart from Christ. In Romans chapter 5, Paul goes to great lengths to relate our sin to Adam's sin. And this teaching is certainly found here in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, where God says that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. I think the best way to understand what this means and how we relate this to our Christian life and to repentance is again from the children's catechism. Now, children were very helpful to me last week. I would consider these catechisms to be kind of level 301 or so. So let me just read them for you. How did Adam and Eve change when they sinned? The children's catechism asked. The answer, instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. The next question asks, did Adam act for himself alone in the covenant of life? No. (laughs) Amen. He represented the whole human race. All right, I've got some level 301 people in here, so let's even get some help with this last one. What effect did the sin of Adam have on all people? Give you a hint. We're all born guilty and sinful. 
We are all born guilty and sinful. Adam represented us in the fall of man. As death came to the one man, the Bible says, so death came to all men. But it's in our nature to think that we live self-autonomous lives, that what we do doesn't matter to anyone else around us, and that our sin and that our lifestyle choices have no effect on anyone around us. But that is not the way God designed our world. You see, death entered the world through the sin of the one man, Adam. And the Bible says death came to all men. We are all born into this world guilty and sinful. We are born spiritually dead. Understanding this very basic and very important doctrine of sin is paramount to living a life of repentance. You are a sinner by nature. And we must understand that. We must see that so that we can live a life daily of turning from sin and turning to God. But not only must we understand that we are all born sinners and that this is crucial to living a life of repentance, but also we need to understand the omniscience of God that we discussed last week. God is everywhere. God sees all things. And in Hosea chapter 7, verse 2, if you'll look there with me, we read that all of our deeds, all of our evil, is before the face of God. We think that we can get away from God. We think that we can hide from Him with our fig leaves, like Adam and Eve tried to in the garden. But we need to understand that God sees everything. Verse 1 of chapter 7, our iniquity is always before him. It is always revealed. It's also important to understand that our sin, our sin does not just fade with time. Look what he, how it's described in verse 2. It wraps around us. It surrounds us. And our sin is an affront. It offends an all-holy God. And so our sin must be dealt with. It is ever before the face of God. It cannot be ignored. So what do we do? How do we hide? Where can we go if this is who we are and how we are before God? Well, back in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, we are given a clue to a solution to this problem. We are told in verse 2 of chapter 6 that on the third day the people proclaim, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. What does that mean? Why this reference to this third day that He will raise us up? Is this a literal prescription for what and how God was going to rescue His people? What does it mean? Well, it's hard to connect this third day promise to the New Testament like Jesus does the sign of Jonah. Do you remember when he is telling the folks that the Son of Man uh, must be in the grave three days, much like, where was Jonah for three days? Any of the children remember? Anybody remember? I can't remember. Oh, no, almost. Where was Jonah? In the belly of a what? 
and the whale, the fish. He was in there for three days, right? That was what Jesus said was the sign of Jonah. And it was to point to the saving nature of what Jesus was going to do, that he was going to be in the grave for three days, and then he would be raised to save his people. And so we know from the scriptures that the third day is of infinite importance when it comes to historical redemption. The Apostle Paul says in that famous acknowledgement of the faith in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, this third day is of infinite importance to us. This is the point at which repentance meets the knowledge of God. That the only escape from the judgment for our sin is true repentance and turning to Christ for salvation. It's turning to the one who died for our sins, who was buried, and who was raised on the third day. This knowledge that God says that we must have is life-saving. It's life-changing. And repentance brings us into a deeper and more profound awareness of our need for Christ. That we cannot live the Christian life alone. That we cannot just do it ourselves. We need more of Christ. The more we see our need for Christ, the closer we grow to him. And the more we find out, and the more we find our hearts crying out as the psalmist, if you, O Lord, were to keep a record of sins, who could stand? If every week a list of all those who had committed heinous sins in our society were leaked on the internet, who could stand? None of us. The psalmist says, O Lord, but with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. And so I ask you this morning, have you repented of your sin? Have you turned to Christ? And if you've never done that, please do so now. Turn from yourself, turn from your slavery to sin, and turn to Christ. When I was a child, I wanted to be saved because I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to burn. And so I wanted to do whatever I could to get that fire insurance. But there's so much more to the Christian life than that. It's not just turning from our sin. It's turning to righteousness. Daily looking to Christ. Daily reminding ourselves of the gospel. Daily reminding ourselves that there really is good news out there. And there's good news for those who are like Adam. Dead in their sin. Jesus died for sinners. Like you and like me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us where we 
superficially and too simplistically try to treat sin in our Christian life as very flippantly, like it doesn't matter. You, O oh Lord, realize that sin is such a radical offense to you and that we could do nothing about it, that you, you killed your son for us so that we could have everlasting life. We praise you and thank you for the Lord Jesus. Help us to live for him by daily turning away from sin and unrighteousness and daily turning to righteousness, turning to those things that you call good, those things that we need every day to live before you. Lord, daily remind us of the sweet good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.